You're listening to the EdF Experience, where we make education your business. On this episode of the EdF Experience, we welcome Jeff Salingo. Jeff is the author of two New York Times bestsellers. He's a contributor to The Atlantic and The Washington Post, and a special advisor for innovation at Arizona State University. His new book, Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions, will be published by Simon & Schuster in September of 2020, and I believe it's currently available for pre-order on Amazon. Now, let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience. Joe Salustio here, and on the line, we have Jeff Salingo. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. It's an honor. Uh, you, you are a well-known voice in higher education. Uh, we feel very lucky to have you here. But before we get into the the, the nuts and bolts, the nitty-gritty, how are you doing amidst uh, COVID-19? How's your health? How's your, your circle? How's your family? How's everybody? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, it's been uh, a very different experience uh, for me. On, uh, on March 6th, I think it was, I flew home from Dallas. Uh, I was on the road for a couple of events. I was on the road for probably 20 of 28 days in February. Um, and I haven't been on, on a plane since uh, March 6th and haven't spoken in front of a large gathering since the next day here in DC, which was March 7th. So uh, this is a very different uh, life than I was leading before for before COVID, but you know, incredibly lucky. Uh, the family is, uh, is in good health. Um, and I'm just looking forward to seeing the other side of this for everybody. Yeah. I, and you know, I don't know when that's going to be, uh, uh, but uh, you know, you think about all the disruption this has caused in our individual lives and, uh, and, and frankly, and then you, you, you look at that in terms of higher education and, and you're a well-known voice uh, out there. Uh, you're doing a lot of speaking. You've been on podcasts. You're writing books. You know, what's your sense? I mean, because we've we've seen over the last bit, um, everybody making plans for fall uh, on whether to have students back on campus. Um, there's been a, you know, I don't have to detail this out for you, but you've seen the shift to remote learning, the failures in in most ways of of that. Um, uh, and schools going, okay, let's get people back on campus, and then COVID uh, takes off again, and then they change their minds. What, what's your sense of what's going on out there as a broad stroke to sort of set the stage for this this uh, podcast episode? What's happening from your perspective as you're advising and talking to schools out there right now? Well, it's clear to me that they all thought, A, this wouldn't last as long as it has, right? So we we started back in March with a move to remote learning, which was supposed to last likely in some cases a couple of weeks they thought then we saw the spring semester canceled then we were talking about you know canceling commencements in summer nobody was really talking about the fall back then then we saw the move to you know hopefully getting back to the fall in some physical form in some face-to-face form and now we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks of this summer this move toward uh, an online or a hybrid fall it's clear to me that the financial model, that the pedagogical model of higher ed is largely on the side of face-to-face learning. Uh, Online learning doesn't really get the respect that it, um, I think in some ways it deserves, uh, nor does it get the investment uh, that it it needs. And and what worries me is that we've spent so much time, I just recently wrote a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education on this, and I was looking through 
all the back to campus plans. Remember, and all most of the plans kind of follow that theme, back to campus. And so I was looking yep. and sifting through all of those plans online. And it's clear from looking at those that the committees and how they were structured and the plans themselves focus so much on getting back to that physical campus. And I really wonder if we spent the last couple of months doing that, which I think is important, getting back to campus, but also investing more in the online element, both the classroom experience, but all the wraparound services that come, academic and social and extracurricular. I think we would have been better prepared for the fall because now what I fear is that the fall remote experience, and we know the spring remote experience wasn't great for a lot of students, is going to be just as yep. bad uh, because we didn't prepare for it. You know, and I, I have that same fear uh, because you, you and there's a and it's it's out there and you look at social media and you look at those plans. A lot of schools were expecting they're going to have uh, students back. So why invest in online education when you're fully expecting to fill your facilities back up with students? And now all of a sudden uh, it's, uh, oh, no, what are we going to do? Right. Because uh, a number of states are and even uh, you know, the second biggest uh, uh, K through 12 um, uh, school district in LA is going fully online. Uh, everybody's, uh, you know, uh, you, you wonder if there was real intentional investment into, into plan B and, and to your point, I don't know if there was, but what do you think, and the question I have for you is this, so we're, we're taking this in segments, almost in quarters, right? Second quarter is just a COVID quarter, third, third quarter through the summertime. It's a preparation quarter for whatever. And then, and then fourth quarter is going to be uh, probably a little bit of crazy again. Are, is the average college president prepared for this uh, new world of online education, uh, probably intense competition, uh, and uh, you know, bifurcated models of, of higher ed? No, and to be honest, I don't think anyone's ready for it. This is really a playbook that wasn't designed yet. I think most college presidents are, are very traditional in the way they think about their student body and the way they think about product development. I hate to use that word because I know people in higher ed uh, hate it, but, they, but in terms of what are the services that you need to offer students? How do you need to deliver those services in classes? Um, what are the types of degrees and programs that you need to offer and even down to the actual credentials? All of this, I think, is up for discussion right now. And I don't think most college presidents have a process in place, both from a governance standpoint, but even from a design standpoint, to think about what could be next. And it really worries me in terms of their ability to pivot much more quickly than they've ever had to before, even after the 2008 financial crisis for a new world order that I think is going to come uh, after COVID. And it's not that, you know, yes, some institutions are gonna go out of business. It's not that hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of institutions are going to go out of business. And so when I talk about a new world order, I'm just talking about a different way of doing things. People will still wanna to go to college, still wanna get an education, but there are going to be some changes, some in the central part of the university and some at the edges that I don't think most presidents are ready for. Okay, so give me an example. I mean, that's a good point. And, and by the way, before you give me the example of, of maybe something at the edges, uh, it is funny to, to understand, and this is a, a totally different topic of why higher education in general is 
scared or refuses to accept the consumeristic um, notion of higher education, that it's a product and a service to, to some degree, but we could talk about that later. But give me an example of, of something at the fringes or at the edges that you think might change uh, as a result of this. Uh, so one is a, a great example. Uh, we keep talking about the, the decline of the SAT and the ACT this spring, right? And, and all these schools going test optional uh, that we've been seeing in, in the admissions uh, world. And so all the impact we think is going to be on the admissions process, right? Well, well, now we don't have a test score, so what are we going to do? But as we all know, the SAT and the ACT also gives colleges and universities another incredibly important piece of data, uh, and that's a name, right? So there's all these search names that colleges buy from the college board, uh, and, and we're not going to have that uh, coming, out of, uh, coming out of this. And so how are we going to have that funnel of students? And we have to think about that in a different way. How are we going to do outreach to students? Because now we may not have admissions officers able to travel to high schools or to college fairs. You may not Good have point. students able to come to campus for campus tours. So the whole funnel and how we thought about getting students into that enrollment funnel is going to change. And I don't think that most college presidents beyond knowing that the SAT was canceled, are really thinking about that. You know, that's a really good point. Uh, and, a, and a good transition into an event that you haven't come, uh, having uh, come up in September, which is a release of your, your new book, um, uh, Who Gets In and Why, You're Inside College Admissions. Uh, talk about uh, the book and uh, your experience and, and what the reader will get out of this uh, if they buy and read your book. And, and uh, how was the experience writing, I think, your third book? Is that correct? Yeah, it's my third book. Uh, well, first of all, I hope they will buy it. Uh, you know, it's a, <laughs> I'm sure they so, will. <laughs> uh, so it's a, a, a Who Gets In and Why, a Year Inside College Admissions, uh, going to be published by Simon Schuster. It's available for pre-order right now. It comes out September 15th. And, and this is kind of an inside the, a look process at, at admissions. In some ways, it's an update on, on Jack Steinberg's Gatekeeper's book, published to, you know, around 2000, where he was in inside the Wesleyan process. This is slightly different. First of all, it's 20 years later. And I'm looking at the process inside three colleges and universities. So I was embedded at uh, the University of Washington, at Emory University, and at Davidson College. So very three different places in terms of you know, small liberal arts college, big research university on the public side, and a big research university on the, on the, on the private side. I also followed a group of students who were applying everywhere. Through this, uh, through this process, uh, seniors. And so I, I profile three students in particular and, and, their, and their process of going through this, uh, uh, through the college search. And then the final group that I look at are all the influencers that impact college admissions. Everybody from the rankings, uh, mainly the US News and World Report rankings, the consultants, uh, the high school counselors, everybody who plays a role kind of on the outside and in some cases are pulling levers that students and parents never see. Well, that's interesting. And Liz, uh, I think my co-host is past uh, <laughs> difficulties and on. Uh, in, the, in the spirit of true technology work from home, from time to time, we have technical difficulties. And, and uh, that we do. Uh, Liz has been very excited to talk to you, Jeff, and I know she's got some questions. So since she's on now, I'm going to kick it over to her. 
I appreciate that. And I'm like, like my fist was like to the heavens. I was like waving my fist like, no, don't let this happen right now. So I'm excited to be able to join this conversation. And I appreciate Jeff's patience. And I definitely want to pin his ears back and, and ask him some questions um, about everything that we're talking about in terms of higher ed and online and the future and all the great innovations that we need to be thinking about. Jeff, um, just to kind of piggyback on what you were talking about with Joe, how do we, so this is a question that has really plagued me and I've been reading a lot of the great stuff that you've been putting out and a lot of your insight is amazing. How do we, from Joe and myself, we've worked in the online space for um, both of us probably over a decade or so. How do we get schools to really invest in, like you talked about, understand, buy into the great potential of online learning? Like you said, it's been really a lot of resistance. And most of us that work in this space, we've been fighting this battle almost like on, to deaf ears um, for a very long time. And now that everyone is going to be relying on it to some extent or another, even Harvard, everybody's going to be relying on online to deliver um, classes, even if it's in a hybrid, even if they are able to bring students back to campus, they're going to have to have some online delivery for their education um, and their classes in place. How do we get them to understand the potential for the quality and the amazing um, robust nature of an online education because that's something that we've seen a lot of resistance to. Yeah, and, and I think the unfortunate part is they're not going to see it through their fast pivot to many what are many called emergency remote learning from this spring and as Joe and I were just talking about likely for this fall because they're not really redesigning courses for online learning. They're not really taking advantage of the latest technology. In many cases, they're duct taping together uh, a learning management system with Zoom and calling that online learning. And so in some ways, I fear it might give, right? It might give online learning a bad name. Uh, blasphemy, my job to blasphemy. <laughs> I'm to, to the little, like the, the duct tape of Zoom and calling it online. It's like, it, yeah. makes me, it gives me the tremors when I just even hear you say that, Jeff. <laughs> and it does. And I think, I think that's what's passing for online learning at most um, institutions right now. Uh, and, and, he, and I was talking to a college president recently who is well known, uh, his institution is well known in the online learning space, but even within their traditional undergraduate space, he told me that some professors did it really well and some professors didn't do it really well. So in other words, it was, it was uneven within these, even within these institutions that have been largely doing online in a big way. So what's gonna change? Uh, I think that it's gonna the demand's going to have to come from students, from employers. Uh, it's going to have to come from faculty inside who may be experimenting. And I think clearly when there's a, now a second semester online in the fall and maybe a third semester next spring, you're gonna have more faculty say, you know what, I'm just gonna rethink how I teach this course because clearly we're gonna be in the online environment or the hybrid environment for much longer. I think once that happens, I think once you have more faculty, more students, and then employers on the other side at the graduate level and at the employee engagement level saying, we need to have a better online experience than just 
duct taping these two things together, that's when I think college leaders will finally get it. But I don't think they're inclined to change how they're doing things right now, because for the most part, that's also paying the bills. Kind of the, the huh. traditional structure, the traditional face-to-face -face structure is how university and college budgets are built. And there's really no incentive for them to change it. Jeff, let me jump in, Liz, I'm so sorry, but there's a question. No, go ahead, yeah, for sure. There's gonna be, there, there will be some schools that go on ground. Um, and maybe in states where there's not a lot of COVID cases, or I think uh, I think memory says Florida was requiring all students to go back on yeah. on ground. Um, mm -hmm. And there's going to be a spike in that university or college in COVID cases, and maybe they completely retract that and send everybody home. Have you thought about that, Jeff, or has anybody talked about that in your circles? And what was the, is going to be the impact? not only on the students, but on the entire model of, you know, delivering education. If we're seeing this quick back and forth, moving from traditional online based on a, a disease and what that can do, um, not only to the students learning, but to the, how the institution functions. I think in some cases, uh, college leaders are, that's a hopeful scenario for them, that they're able to start on campus. And even if they have to send students home, and here's why because again, it comes back to the finances of this. They think that as long as students start on campus it's, this fall, it's much easier then for them to uh, not refund tuition in any way and not even in some cases only refund a portion of living and, and food, room and board. So they actually want, because I think that if they start the fall online, the calls and the demands for especially tuition discounts are gonna be so enormous by students and parents that I think colleges are going to have to figure out a way to give some sort of COVID discount. But if they, if they start on campus and then they have to send students home again, they'll say, ah, just like the spring, we can't, you know, you're, we, we can't refund tuition. That's interesting. That, that's an interesting point. I, I like that um, list. I just, I, when he, when you said that, Jeff, it kind of like just, I, my shoulders kind of like deflated because I think it speaks to almost contributing to a lot of the distrust and disillusionment with higher education that a lot of parents, a lot of students, just the, the general public has when we have skyrocketing student debt, we have workplace readiness being questioned, we have, questioned, we have return on investment being questioned, and then you have colleges and universities that are making decisions not based on what's best for the students, not based on what the CDC is recommending, not based on them investing in emerging technologies to make the online experience more robust, engaging for students. You have them saying, well, the bottom line is we have to open campus because without tuition paying students, we can't pay our bills. I mean, how do we regain the trust of the general public and how do we get the students and the parents and even the, 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 the federal government and the, the general public to really trust that higher education is working in the best interest of students when, when we're looking at it just um, in black and white, it just doesn't seem like that's what's happening. No, and I, and I really fear that higher education wasn't, it had pretty low public opinion a survey of higher education, both among, among every political party out there. You know, Democrats thought that uh, when you look at surveys by Pew and, uh, and other survey uh, places, uh, uh, including Gallup, 
you would see before the pandemic hit that you know Democrats thought college it cost too much. Uh, Republicans thought that their uh, their you know liberals were kind of telling their kids what to do um, in classes, right? So both <laughs> sides of the political spectrum did not like higher ed um, very much, and 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 we saw some of the lowest public opinion surveys of of higher education before the pandemic. So then the pandemic hits, uh, and then what happens is you you know stu- you know schools are sending the students home. The online experience now parents get to see it live as our students are, are working from home and they don't think it's very good. And we, we saw that in a number of, of surveys. Oh, and by the way, we're still charging you what we were going to charge you for the on-campus experience. I can't right. imagine, I can't imagine that, uh, that the, the polling on higher education is going to be any better. And in, in fact, I think it's going to be worse when we do these national polls again about what the American public thinks about higher education and the direction it's going. You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hey guys, this is Joe, and I just want to remind you to check out our website at www.edupexperience.com. On the website, you're going to find all of our past episodes that we've done with some of the top leaders in higher education today, talking about innovations, ideas, and issues facing our industry today, finding out what may happen in the future, what higher ed needs to look like moving forward. So again, check out www.edupexperience.com. Now, let's get back to the action. I saw on LinkedIn and um, you published a almost like a, 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 a timeline for how colleges and universities need to invest in over maybe like a 15-week, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, timeline of first looking at the LMS then looking at the program outcomes and then kind of step by step. Can you kind of build us, take us through what you think a college needs to do as far as planning for those that are in the online space, whether they're in leadership, whether they're just in the online department and they want to think, they want to try to wrap their mind around, well, just how do we do this? We're so overwhelmed. We've we've really not invested in online. Can you kind of take us through the the thought process with that um, timeline that you came out with? as far as how schools can kind of address these, it seems very overwhelming, okay, rolling out online. So I can definitely sympathize with that idea from, for someone that hasn't worked in this space. How do they kind of chunk that down into a manageable process so that they can start to build somewhere in a program that is giving students, like you said, the quality and the parents are like, hey, this is not what you know I thought online was. So how can they start to pivot toward something that, does resemble uh, a quality online program, just based on your your guidelines that you came out with. Right. So that uh, just to give credit where credit's due, that was a, a paper that Amanda Smith wrote that I, I right. did talk about on uh, on on LinkedIn, and and her argument gotcha. was that colleges and universities should build a minimal viable product, right, and 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 iterate on it, right. So we think in higher ed that we have to have it all figured out and all solved, which takes which is the reason why it takes us years to do anything um, in much of, in much of <laughs> higher ed, right? So if we think of this as an iterative process, we don't have, this all, have to have this all figured out for the fall. What I wish that colleges had done months ago was think, okay, there's a very good chance we're going to be online in the fall in some way. Hybrid, all online, we may have to send the students back home in October or whatever. So let's get our faculty who are going to teach in the fall. Let's get them some training on how to be more effective and better online faculty members. 
let's hire out again this is going to cost some money but i think it's money well spent let's hire out for some instructional designers to work with some of our faculty especially those big courses where we have a lot of student enrollment to make sure that those courses are the best that they can be this fall and much better than they were in the spring. To me, that is what the fall should be at a minimum at most colleges and, and universities. And then as the fall goes on, we could start to increase the number of courses where we're having instructional designers redesign them with faculty, where we're getting more faculty training, where we're investing in new technology, because that's the other thing. I think again, that if you talk to the average college president, they think, well, our LMS is good enough to provide kind of the platform along with something like Zoom for online learning. We all know that there's much better active learning platforms out there. Uh, you know, we have, you know, even the OPMs and what they use, uh, the online program managers that mostly play in the graduate space. You know, there's so much more we can learn from those institutions that are using what I would call the technology backbone. You may not be able to kind of go out and purchase it and put it in place by September, but you can start to put those things in place over the course of the next academic year. And so then you have both the technology and the pedagogy, you marry those two things together. And we, and we I think have a much better online product uh, by the end or even the middle of this coming academic year. The problem is, is that most colleges and universities decided when they had to make a bet a couple of months ago, they decided instead of trying to do two things at once, we were gonna make the bet on uh, getting back in person. Um, and some of that was for legitimate financial reasons. Uh, some of it was around pedagogical reasons. They just think we're a residential campus, we need to be face-to-face. -face. But I wanna go back to something that, that Joe said earlier. I don't think investing in online education was gonna be a wasted bet, even back in the spring. The fact of the matter is, if you have to buy miles of plexiglass, you know, we see all these colleges now buying plexiglass, for their campuses. What are you gonna do with that in a couple of years, right? Eventually, you know, hopefully we'll have a vaccine for this and we'll go back to some sort of normalcy or you're probably gonna to have to put all that plexiglass in storage. Just think though, if you invest in some sort of online education now, you're gonna be able to use that in some fashion years from now. Uh, and you're gonna, you know, create and increase the digital IQ of your campus. To me, that's money well spent and I'm not quite sure why university leaders didn't go in that direction a couple months ago. And That's I a said, great I, question. I, I, Million dollar question, right, Joe? <laughs> it, it is. And, and to that point, you know, I've said this, it's, I don't remember what uh, episode, but I, I said, you know, even for something as, as uh, you know, school shooting, for example, where the university shuts down for a week and, and people are out of classes and dispersed back to their houses. If you've invested in online education, you don't have to interrupt the learning. And, and for something that's serious, and, and that's a bad example, I guess, but what about a snow day for K through 12? Or what about, you know, there's, way, there's a big reason for having online education even as a plan B. But I do want to uh, take you back to the book, Jeff, and I, and I know you don't want to give it away, even though I would ask you to give away every sentence that you wrote for, for the Edup experience, but I know you won't. <laughs> Um, you know, you, there's a, I'm looking at your, your website right now, uh, com, and uh, you give a description of the book. And, and the sentence here that I found really the most interesting is that the, in the description, it says, in a world where thousands of equally qualified students vie for a fixed number of spots at elite institutions, admissions officers often make split-second decisions based on a variety of factors like diversity, money, and ultimately whether a student will enroll if accepted. And I, and I read that and I go, okay, so 
elite institutions may be only accepting students, so the way I'm reading this, is that they're accepting students based on a, a bet, since we're talking about bets, a bet on whether that student will actually continue their enrollment and attend the school rather than looking at it on a criteria basis. Um, as you suggest, is that what you're saying there and is that covered in the book? Yes, yeah, so the, the real central thesis of the book is that colleges and universities, you know, admissions is not about the individual student. And I think this is the biggest problem uh, and issue that facing uh, high school students and their parents who apply to college is they think they have to jump through all these hoops to get into the colleges of their dreams. And what they don't realize is that on the other side of the table are colleges and universities, thousands of them, as we know in this country, in the US, who have different priorities for what they want in their incoming classes. And those priorities could be, you know, we want students from all 50 states. Uh, those priorities could be they need more um, male students because they're highly female in terms of their enrollment. They need more full payers. A lot of, a lot of places need that. Or it could be that if they have sports teams, they need more, they need a pitcher for their, for their baseball team. So there's a million priorities that colleges and universities have uh, for their incoming class. The president, the board, others give that list to the VP for enrollment, the admissions dean, and, and they go out and they find that class and they bring that class in. If you're sitting on the other side of that table, if you're the student parent, you have no idea in many cases what those priorities are. They change from year to year. At, uh, at some institutions. And if you're applying to 10 institutions, those tenants, that set of 10 institutions likely has very different priorities. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to jump through hoops and you have really no idea what they want on the other side. And, and so the central thesis of the book is that admissions is not about you, the student, it's about the college, their needs, their priorities, their agenda. And I try to encourage students and parents in this book to understand this process better so that they stop trying to play that game they go to, they, first of all, they broaden their list of institutions that they're looking at. They, they decide where they want to go to college for what is the best fit for them, for what they want out of college, not necessarily what some bumper sticker is going to say on the back of their car. And stop playing this game with colleges to try to figure out what they want and what they need um, every year. And so that, to me, is the central premise of the book. And it really takes a deeper dive into this ecosystem to try to help students and parents understand what is happening behind those closed doors. It is mystifying. That is phenomenal, yeah. very mystifying. And I would, I hate to jump over and, and kind of jump over what Joe is saying, but in terms of the admissions process and the elitism that goes along with who's being admitted. And like you said, a lot of times it's nothing really to do with the student. They, the college has their own agenda and they have their own outcomes that they're looking to accomplish through, through the admissions office. And, and those, that's kind of like, like uh, Joe said, mystifying. It's something that is it, very internal. So the student will never know and the parent will never know. How do we address the inequality in terms of the admissions process and how that affects the first-gen students, yeah. minority students, whether it be black students and students of color, there is a lot of inequity in terms of not only just at least elite institutions, the, the middle tier and state colleges, I think the only places where we, but we find minority students in, in the majority is at some of the, the career colleges and the community colleges where they have a more open policy in terms of admission. What do we do and how do, um, does your book address this and, and how do we advise parents where they, they have a student that has a great amount of potential and could attend an elite college, but they don't understand how to jump through and navigate 
this process and how do we get colleges to understand the benefit of being more open in terms of giving these students that have so much potential that are first and you can hear my voice getting a little bit I'm getting emotional about this because I think it's it's a really um for those first I was a first gen student I was an immigrant I was black I was a woman and I was just in the the you know if it wasn't for at University of Florida they had an initiative where they came to my school high school in the east side of Fort Lauderdale 98 percent black and they went out of their way to recruit students from that school but how do we get schools to understand how critical it is to do that? Because if they hadn't done that, maybe I wouldn't have even went there. You know, how do we change that for these students? Well, I think, that, I, think that's, uh, I think that's point number one. And, and I actually have a chapter in the book called High School Matters, right? Because schools, in many ways, colleges and universities are recruiting high schools, not students. That's the unit of measure. There are 40,000 high schools in the U.S., and even the most selective colleges are not getting applicants from the majority of them. So most selective colleges are getting applications from fewer than 10,000 high schools. And while that still may sound like a lot, they're actually getting most of their applications from even a smaller portion of those high schools. And they're accepting um, students from a, you know, a smaller uh, subsection of those high schools, right? They, they have these feeder high schools they keep going back to. And until they start to broaden that range of high schools of where they recruit, of where they spend time, we're never going to diversify the student body because as we all well know, our K through 12 schools are highly segregated. Um, and as long okay. as they remain highly segregated and call it and elite colleges, and universities only recruit at certain high schools, which tend to be in wealthy um, uh, zip codes, um, which tend to be wider, uh, as a result, they're never going to be able to diversify other student bodies. So that's one of the things it starts with. Second, it starts with what they ask for in the application. And, you know, and, and when you look at these applications and, and, the, and all the spots they have for extracurricular activities and, and all these schools that ask for multiple test scores and, and, and all the courses that they have to take, as we well know, if you're at an under-resourced school, which again tends to be mm -hmm. students of color, low-income students, first-generation students, you're not going to have access to a lot of the things that the application is looking for. Um, and so you kind of you're, you decide, well, I'm not even going to apply there because I can't even fill in all these blanks. Well, the fact of the matter is, is after I sat in this process for over a year, they're not even looking at some of that stuff, or they're looking at it for mm -hmm. the course of a couple of, of, of minutes. And in fact, at the end of the book, I talk about the future of admissions and I talk about the things that can change the admission system. And one of the things I, ask, I say is that colleges really should only ask for what they really need in the admissions process. They need grades. They, I don't think they need test scores. They don't need 12 activities. They don't need all these, you know, they don't need multiple essays. They don't need all these things that they think, because they don't look at them, that they ask students for and that I think turn off students who haven't been talking about going to college since essentially they were able to walk. And, and so I think that to me, uh, I think it's incumbent on the college on, on those two fronts in particular, it's not gonna change you know, decades of, of, of issues that I think colleges have faced on this, on this front. But I think that recruiting more broadly and that really paring down the application to what really matters is gonna be much, is much more critical. And that's the thing, I think that that salient point that you made is so important for our listeners and for the general American public to understand when we talk about inequity in society, we can trumpet from the top of the mountaintops, education, education is the equalizer, 
But if students don't have the access, if they're being asked for things that someone in another school in a better zip code has the ability to just throw those into the application. And then, like you said, they get discouraged when they're like, I don't have any of this stuff. You know what? Maybe that's just not an option for me. I'll go to community college. And then there's not the support there. So they just drop out. And then you have the greater society at large saying, oh, you had access to education. Why don't you just go to school? Why don't you go to college? Because that would have been the equalizer for you. But that hasn't happened. So then that equalizer has already been taken away. So then you don't have the same pay that someone does that had the opportunity. You don't have the same access to network. You don't have the same access to jobs. You don't have, you know, it just, it, it affects everybody in our economy because then you have a whole section of the economy, maybe 30% would be speaking about Latino, black, other students of color that haven't had access to everything else that would have come from just, their, their address being different from another student, right? And, and, and I, think that's the, I think that's the issue uh, facing um, institutions right now is that uh, in many ways, as we think about uh, higher education as a sorting mechanism for the rest of society and the rest of life, is that if you don't get access to uh, this right set of institutions or this set of institutions, you're going to be closed off from opportunities after college and further down, uh, further down the road. So this is why admissions in many ways is so critical and why diversifying that incoming pipeline. And it really starts at the top about who you recruit and how much time you spend in different places. So I have a rural student that, and you know, from the middle of Pennsylvania, uh, that's one of the characters in the book, you know, over the course of the fall, he may have had 20 plus colleges visit his high school. And as you well know, in a well-resourced high school uh, in, you know, in, a, in an urban area or suburban area, they're probably going to have 30 schools visit in one day, 30 colleges, right? He was more likely to have a military recruiter come to his high school than he was to have a college come to his high school. I think that says a lot to those students. Uh, and, and if he didn't have a counselor who really cared, a counselor who came in through, uh, through one of these community-based organizations, I, I don't think he would have ended up, um, you know, going to a selective liberal arts college like he did um, as a result. Jeff, let me, let me jump in and ask this question because you're talking about your admissions uh, recommendations for the future to try to change college admissions and what we can do. Um, and COVID, COVID may, depending on how you look at it, if you're looking into the future, may accelerate some of those changes because of the, the compounding factors. Uh, as you know, well know, there's the, the pre-COVID, the, docu the, um, the well-documented issue of the declining age of uh, the declining pipeline of high school students looking to go to college, the 2020, uh, what is it, 25, 26 drop-off. Um, uh, add to that. Uh, now, uh, a, a the concept of a gap year, which I don't think we've talked about too in depth on the show at this point, because it was really a, a dream, you know, oh, students might take a gap year, you know, three, four <laughs> months ago, and now it's becoming more of a reality. And what does that do to the, to the overall pipeline? Um, and so, so has, uh, do you think that colleges, at least the most innovative ones are looking at this going, okay. We, we have to now change the way we're looking at applicants. Maybe we do have to eliminate some of the barriers to entry, like long application processes, because they're just going to be less people 
to contend with. Oh, oh, by the way, we have to contend with the gap year student that doesn't and goes and starts working and decides to put college off for a few years uh, because he or she is working now. And so you lose that <laughs> pipeline too. Do you think there's some schools out there from your experience that are looking at us going, we need to prepare for the future here? Uh uh, well, I definitely think they, they're worried about the demographic decline, right? Because if you're not born, you're not going to college. And so those numbers, they know those numbers, right? <laughs> Especially among traditional 18-year-olds, right? So they know the numbers of high school graduates and what's happening, where they're coming from uh, in the next couple of years. So that's been reality. But the problem is, and the, the reason I paused at your question, was because for the most part in enrollment management, I think that it's about delivering the next class. It's not delivering, it's not about delivering the class two or three or four or five years down exactly. the road. So my, yeah. my feeling is that too many um, VPs and admissions officers and admissions deans kind of have, are, have, are so focused on the next year on getting that, that pipeline and that funnel uh, filled with prospects, uh, getting their, uh, their numbers to yield, hitting their budgets, I think they're so focused on that and then they kind of start rinse and repeat the following year rather than really looking ahead and saying, what is our, you know, what should our strategy be going forward? You know, many of them do have strategic enrollment plans, but for the most part, they're not as specific as what they need to do next year. Yeah, and I, as an enrollment and marketing professional myself of 20 years working both in for-profit and nonprofit. I haven't seen many strategic enrollment plans worth, worth their salt. I mean, it doesn't, the reality of how to recruit and, and what you do on paper are completely different. And, and uh, to your point, I think that's true. I, I mean, you know, we're always, I say we, because I, I'm an administrator myself and we're looking at what's going to happen next month and the month after. But, um, you know, for me, more than the, the number, you know, if you're not born, you can't go to college. More than that, you know, five to seven years from now, is is the gap year consideration that scares me as a as an enrollment manager um and uh, would scare me if i was at a bigger university because i i worry about the students even going to school at all the ones that i would normally have in the pipeline will may not even be in my pipeline oh by the way there's going to be how many universities now that offer online courses so the student that's a little bit fearful of germs may not even go to college anymore they're not going to come see me in alabama wherever i am they're going to stay close to home in North Dakota and they're going to go to a school there because they're not going to leave home. And those considerations are, are, could be massively impactful to the future population of universities. Don't, don't you think, or is that, am I crazy? Well, I think that, well, you are, you are crazy, but go ahead. That was a rhetorical question. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> no, and, and I think that what we're going to need to see coming out of, uh, uh, out of this pandemic, we're going to, see to need to see institutions think in different ways and not try to replicate one another, both from their, everything from their admissions process to the types of academic programs that they offer to the types of degrees that they, uh, they award. We have thousands of institutions all chasing a smaller and smaller group of, of high school students. Meanwhile, we have tens of millions of adults who have some college but no degree and, and very few uh, institutions chasing them. At the same time, we also need, I think, new ways of thinking about the degree, uh, you know, a three-year degree, 
Uh, we, and this is again, going back to how we think about investing in online education. We could probably do more hybrid education at a lower cost. If you think about, and again, I know that higher education hates this word, but if you think about the product mix of higher education, it, it's like walking into a supermarket and seeing five items, not hundreds <laughs> of items, right? Um, and, and that to me is what's happening is you walk into any university and they all offer the same things, a four-year bachelor's degree in these 20 or 30 programs aimed at an 18-year-old with all these amenities at the same cost, right? We need much more differentiation in, in the sector. Uh, and I think that is going to come after COVID or even during COVID because I think many universities are going to be forced because that, those students just aren't going to be there anymore who would have bought those five products. So they're going to have to put new products out there. The problem is, is that they should have been developing these over the years. And I think those institutions who are first movers, and I think take online education as just one example, they've been doing this for years. They're going to be in a much better position to grab those students or transfer students I'm thinking of. I think transfer is going to go way up because I think you're going to have a number of students. You know, you mentioned the gap year. I think you're going to have a number of students going to uh, community colleges uh, this fall and then eventually going to transfer to four-year colleges. And I think, again, the first movers there are going to get the bulk of those students. So it's about thinking of new products and doing that much more quickly. Jeff, is it going to take a total like crash and just seismic shift? I think of, and we've talked about this, I think, um, maybe with Michael Horn, you're, you're a futurist in, in yep. much the same vein. Is it going to take like a Netflix disruption where it's like, hey, Blockbuster, you, you didn't listen, now you're going out of business. Is it going to take something crazy like that with higher ed where just we see that people just like, you know what, this is not, I don't need to go and go on a Saturday night and look through all these videotapes and, and there's nothing there. Yeah, I mean, it's not, home. Um, I, I laugh when you mentioned Blockbuster because I was just over <laughs> in Eastern Maryland uh, over the weekend and I saw like an old Blockbuster uh, storefronts. And I was, I told my wife, I said, uh, you know, the world would be a different place if Blockbuster still existed. Uh, yeah, I just I had a little nostalgia for, uh, for those days of having to take the, the tapes back and uh, please rewind. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, please but, rewind. Right? Please of course. Rewind, right. But, um, uh, but here's the difference between higher education and Blockbuster, for example, is higher education is a heavily regulated uh, industry huh. from the federal government uh, on down. And so it's, it, the barrier to entry is very high. So it's, it's very unlikely that you're going to see, you, you have had a lot of new players at the fringes of higher ed or taking pieces of what higher ed does, but to, but to do it in the same disruptive way as Netflix, for example, did to Blockbuster, I still don't think it's going to happen because of the way the industry is set up. The other thing that I think is preventing that, and perhaps this could change, is the signaling power of the traditional college or university mm -hmm. degree and and, yeah. and employers you know they still ask for that bachelor's degree or whatever they're going to ask for in their job ads and as long as they're doing that again it's going to be very hard for alternatives to really gain ground in, in higher ed and then that's another question for you because there's been some recent um, legislation from the trump administration where they've said well they want employers to weigh more heavily on experience and we've seen the um maybe like a few weeks ago a few months ago even 
the survey that came out with the results is that uh, parents or students felt that like a internship at Google, for example, was more beneficial than a degree from Harvard. So are we starting to see little chips or like you said, is it that they're so entrenched in terms of the trappings and the tradition and just like you said, the barriers to entry, it, it, sometimes I feel like that's actually a bad thing because it stops innovation. It stops it us from really having to like take a look in the mirror because it's almost like every, everyone is kind of like, it's like when you're, you're someone's making bad decisions and you know, your friend's like, go for it, you know, don't worry about it. It's like no one's pulling you back and being like, look, you know what? No, you, you need to like really change. It, no one's doing that at the higher education and anyone that is is not doing it significantly enough for us not to really take a look at what we're doing and say, you know what, we got to just scrap and, and really start to deliver product that is geared toward what's best for the student. Yeah, I mean, I tend to be kind of a radical incrementalist on this. I, I don't think we should throw mm. away all the regulations because I think they do, there many of them are there to protect students, but you're right, mm -hmm. they also mm -hmm. really inhibit innovation and change in, in higher ed. So I, I hope that we could kind of reach a, a middle ground and, and, and I think that will encourage innovation in the, in the coming years. And I think one of the things that will push it is cost because college mm -hmm. prices continue to go up. You know, we have, right. an, we have an entire generation of indebted students. Uh, we're gonna come out of this uh, COVID-19 with a pretty bad economy, a lot of unemployed people mm -hmm. who can't afford college. That is going to push the envelope on innovation. It's also gonna push the envelope on lessening regulations so that those innovations in higher ed can happen. So I think you're gonna see a push on that as a result. So I'm, I don't think we should throw it all out, but I, I agree that it does inhibit innovation. But I think we're going to start to see in the coming years some changes to that because of the economy. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right, Jeff? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, and Jeff, we want to be sensitive to your time. We know, sure. know you're a busy man. And uh, our last two uh, topics, we always cover what's the future of higher education look like. And you did a really good job covering that on the, on the last question. So we'll, uh, we'll move to... Um, uh, is there anything else that you want to tell our audience about you, anything that you're working on? Obviously, let's go and get Jeff's book. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. It's available for pre-order, but anything else you want to say to the audience? No, and, and that's really what I'm going to be looking at over the next year is, is that the admission system, which I describe in the book, is very tradition-bound, right? Higher education as a whole is very bound to tra its traditions. Mm -hmm. But the admissions office is probably one of the most tradition-bound places on college campuses. They've been doing recruiting and, and, and advising and enrollment in a certain way all these years. And now suddenly COVID-19 has really upended the traditional college search. We talked about it earlier. They can't buy search names. They can't get students to campus. They can't go visit high schools. They don't have test scores. They may not have grades for a lot of students. All these things are changing all at once which is also gonna ruin their models, these enrollment management models that they've built over the years. So to me, in some ways, that's really exciting because I think it allows from some, for some experimentation, for people questioning the way they've done things in the past. And that's something that I'm gonna be looking closely about as I talk about my book in the coming months. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Jeff mm -hmm. Delingo, New York Times best-selling author, and uh, uh, coming out with his new book that's available for pre-order called Who Gets In and Why? Year Inside College Admissions. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, uh, we will continue to watch your work and uh, we'll go out and get the book. That sounds great. Thanks, Thanks for Jeff. having me.
Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So please, as always, feel free to share this podcast. Rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.